In 1943, Philip Stern wrote a small booklet that was a short story entitled The Greatest Gift. Philip Stern could not find anybody to publish this little short story. So on Christmas in 1943, he printed off 200 copies to give away as gifts to his friends on Christmas. Well, eventually, one of the copies of this short story got into the hands of a Hollywood producer and even was read by Cary Grant, who wanted to play the, a lead role in a screen performance of this. And eventually, it came to the Hollywood big screen as It's a Wonderful Life. You remember the story, the story of George Bailey, who's come upon, uh, upon hard times and he's ready to take his own life until a stranger comes to him. And he tells this stranger that he wishes that he had never been born. He comes to find out this stranger is indeed no stranger at all, but is that angel Clarence who grants him his wish of looking at what life would be like if he had never been born. And so George Bailey is taken on a tour of what life would have been like had he never been born. It's a heartwarming story. Still makes me blubber. But I want us to consider this morning, what if Jesus had never been born? What if Jesus had never been born? What are the implications of Jesus not coming to this earth? Well, we get something of a window into the implications of what that would be like when we consider the purposes of Jesus being born. Why did he come? Why did he come to this earth? Why, why didn't God just forgive sins? Why did he, have, why did he go through all this involvement of sending forth his own son to take upon human flesh to live a perfect life. Why all of that? What's it all about? Well, I think there's no better passage in all the scripture that gives us a window into the purpose of the enfleshment of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, than Hebrews chapter 2. The first purpose of the coming of Christ is that he came to die. Doesn't sound like a very chipper message for Christmas, but in reality, that's the case. He was born to die. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. It says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood... He himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. Here again, we get a window into why Jesus took upon flesh. It says that he, it, it, this is because the children share in flesh and blood. Who are the children that he's referring to? Well, you have to... Keep notice that the verse starts with a therefore. So if we look at the preceding verses, we see that the children that 
he's referring to can be found back in verse 13, where it says in verse 13 that I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children whom God has given me. But that doesn't quite give us clarity as to who these children are. So you have to drop back to verse 10, where it says, For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. The children are the sons that he's referring to back in verse 10, namely the children of God. These children are also mentioned in verse 16 of chapter 2 when it says, For assuredly he did not give help to angels, but assuredly he gives help to the descendant or the descendants of Abraham. The children he's talking about are those who have followed in the footsteps of Abraham. They're the children of God. Perhaps you used to sing it when you were young in Sunday school. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. And hopefully so are you. (laughs) The sons of Abraham, the children of Abraham, are those who, like Abraham, believe the promise of God. And so because the children share in flesh and blood, he had to partake of the same. This is a big deal because this helps us to understand that this cosmic eternal plan of Jesus coming to this earth, it was particular. It was not some vague general mission of redemption that was for somebody somewhere out there, but it was for all those children of God so that Jesus took upon flesh for Dale, for Denise, for Joe. He had specific people in mind, his own children. This is why he became enfleshed. So he was born a virgin in a Bethlehem stable. He had a real human body with real flesh and blood, real hemoglobin, real plasma pumping through his veins, a real cardiac muscle that resided in his thoracic area. And it was all with intentionality. He had a real human body that experienced fatigue, that really slept, that really endured the temptations of this world. He had real taste buds that ate food. Ate food. He had real appetites that got hungry. He had real emotions of joy, anger, sorrow, and tears. He had a real human brain that learned things. He took upon flesh and blood. And notice again, this is highlighted in verse 6. The, the, the particularity of this is, I'm sorry, verse 16 of chapter 2 when it says, For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. This is a negative statement here. 
In other words, the author of Hebrews is saying he did not take upon the nature of an angel to give help in redeeming angels, but he did take on the nature of humans to redeem those descendants of Abraham. Friends, you have to deal with the particularity of the mission of Christ at some level, even if it's just for humans. He didn't die for angels. He wasn't enfleshed for angels. He was enfleshed for the descendants of Abraham. By Jesus being clothed in, clothed in humanity, we now, as we keep reading the sentence in verse 4, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same, that, here's the purpose, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. He was born for the purpose of dying. And I say it reverently because... Quite frankly, God cannot die. God is the one who is immortal, incorruptible. God does not die. He cannot die. But God with a human nature can die. In the German wing of the Reformation, there was a obviously Lutheran influence from Martin Luther, but there was also a section of what we know as Germany uh, that was also ref, uh, influenced by the Reformed Church, which was kind of like another branch of the Protestant Reformation. And one of the beautiful things that came out of that was something called the Heidelberg Catechism. Question number 12 in the Heidelberg Catechism asks this, and this is from the 17th century. Since then, or actually the 16th century, since then, by the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. Is there no way by which God, uh, is there no way by which we may escape punishment and be again received into favor? The answer, God will have his justice satisfied. Therefore, we must make this full satisfaction either by ourselves or by another. So the question is asking, since we deserve punishment, uh, is there any way we may escape this? And the answer is no. Either we will receive it or another will receive it. Question number 13. Can we ourselves then make this satisfaction of justice? The answer, by no means. But on the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Isn't that our experience? Can we pay for our own sins? No, we just keep accumulating more debt of sin before God. Dropping down to question 16. Why must he be very man and also perfectly righteous. I'm sorry, I skipped the question. Number 15. What sort of mediator and deliverer then must we seek for? Answer, for one who is very man, perfectly righteous, yet more powerful than all creatures, that is one who is also very God. 
So we need one to be our substitute who can take that guilt that we have, who is man, but he needs to be stronger than man. He also needs to be God. And then question number 16, why must he be very man? Because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should likewise make satisfaction for sin. I and one who is himself, I'm sorry, one who is himself cannot satisfy for others. So what this older catechism is teaching is that we need a substitute, but we need a substitute who is like us, who has the same nature as us, who can be a representative for us. And this, is, this was always the plan all along with Jesus. He was one who was born to die. We see this in the earliest pages of the gospel when that angel Gabriel comes to Joseph and, and, and informs him that his, his betrothed wife, this woman whom he is basically engaged to, is pregnant even though he hasn't had relations with her. He tells Joseph, you are to call this baby boy Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. Built into the very name of Jesus, Yeshua means Yahweh saves. This is one who would be a savior. Well, how, who, how would he save? Through death as a substitute. This is also seen when Simeon is speaking to Mary in a kind of prophetic way. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 35, he says to Mary, he says, A sword will pierce even your own soul. What's he talking about there? To have your soul pierced? To have your soul stabbed, he's clearly referring to that grief, which is some of the greatest grief that humans can ever experience, namely, burying their own child. He's prophesying that Mary is going to experience that great, tremendous grief to have her, her soul pierced. We see this even early, very early in the ministry of Jesus when, when Jesus encounters John the Baptist and Jesus asks John the Baptist to baptize him. Well, what's Jesus doing there? Jesus in a very picturesque kind of way, in a tangible way, is prophesying of his death because it is through the waters of baptism that one becomes a picture of death, burial, and resurrection, going down underneath the water and coming back out. And this picture is sealed with the reality that the Holy Spirit comes down upon Jesus in the picture in the form of what? A sacrificial animal, a dove. And all this at the very outset of Jesus' public ministry of what would take place three years later. When he's hanging on a Roman cross and dying a public humiliating death. Friends, Jesus was born to die. He took upon flesh 
for the purpose and the aim of dying. You cannot divorce the incarnation from the crucifixion. They go together. It's the reason why he was born. But secondly, not only to die, this gives us the purpose, but secondly, the second purpose is to defang and deliver. To defang and deliver. Notice the second part of verse 14, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So that he died in order to render powerless him who had the power of death, the devil. This is why I'm calling it defanging the devil. Defanging the devil with the view to delivering God's people from the fear of death. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you may read this verse and think, well, this kind of seems a little bit odd. What do you mean Satan, the devil, has the power of death? I mean, after all, doesn't Deuteronomy 32, 39 say, the Lord speaking, see now, I, I am he. There is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. It is I who have wounded. It is I who heal. There is no one who can deliver from my hand. Isn't God the one in charge? Of death? Even in the book of Job, you remember, Satan was told that he can do anything that he wanted to Job, but he could not, what? He couldn't kill Job. God had absolute authority over death. So in what sense does Satan have this power of death? Well, I think we have to go back to the beginning, go back to Genesis and see what's going on there where Satan comes in the form of a serpent and he tempts Adam and Eve. And you remember what God had told Adam and Eve that in the day you eat of the the, the fruit uh, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will what? Surely die. And it's Satan who is there seducing Adam and Eve to rebel against their creator. And what's the result? Death. The result of sin and rebellion is death. Physical death and spiritual death. Physical death so that every son and daughter of Adam from that time forward eventually would die. Spiritual death. And that man was now separated in his relationship from God. Man could no longer come back to the presence and have communion and fellowship with God on his own terms. He would have to come back, as we've studied in Leviticus, through blood, through sacrifice, through priesthood. And so it's in this realm that Satan has this power of death because it was his activity that brought forth death in this world. And as, John, as Jesus says in John chapter 8, he is a murderer from the beginning. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And we were dead in trespasses and sins 
in which we formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's talking about Satan involved in the realm of unbelief, again, in the realm of death, trying to bring and drag as many people to hell with him as he can. Every single person now born into this world sins, disobeys God, and will one day die. 150,000 people die every day. 150,000 people. Every 1.7 seconds, somebody slips into eternity. Some of you sitting here this morning may not be here next year because you've died. Not because you didn't like the sermon. (laughs) And so it is here that Jesus was born, born in order to die, to take that punishment that we deserve so that Death is defanged, that the devil is defanged. Listen to Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. The Lord Jesus in glorified form says here, or John writes, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he, that is the glorified Christ, placed his right hand on me saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and I am the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. I have the keys of death and Hades. Friday evening we ran out of chairs. And there was a handful of chairs in one particular room, but the room was locked. (laughs) And we couldn't get in the room. We couldn't find the key. Friends, Jesus has the key to death in Hades. He unlocks the door. Jesus said in John 14, 19, after a little while, speaking to his disciples, "The, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. And because I live, you will live also. And so this is why verse 15 says that he might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. That he would deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery. During the summer and fall, sometimes you'll see those large bees, right? Those big burrow bees. These bees that strike tremendous fear in the hearts of my children, they often go running inside. Bee! Bee! 
and I have to inform them that those big bees actually don't sting. So it is with death for those who are God's children. It's big, it's ugly, it's nasty. But actually, for those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus, the stinger is taken out. That's why the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, Where, O death, is your sting? Christ, through his life, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, has taken the stinger out of death. He says in John 8, 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. It's kind of like this. Imagine there's some milk in the refrigerator that is past its expiration date. And... The wife holds the carton up to me and says, here, you try it. (laughs) And I look at it and say, no, I I don't want to try it. (laughs) But then she pours some for herself. She drinks it, swallows, and then she holds the carton in my face and says, it's okay. You drink it. I'm going to have a lot more confidence to drink that borderline expired milk if she has drunk it first. Well, in a similar way, the Lord Jesus was born and he lived and he died and he rose from the dead. He went through it himself. And he promises that on the other side of death, is eternal life if you've trusted in him. We live in a world that is, as the text says, in bondage to the fear of death. I think that's one of the reasons why there's a little bit of a, wow, this pandemic is a serious thing, there's something of an overreaction to it. I mean, look at the political elite class in our country. Most of them are pushing 80 years old. It is indeed a serious threat to them. And they think everybody else should live their life that kind of way, under the fear of death. We're often petrified to hear that news that you have cancer, you have a cardiac disease. And indeed, for those who are outside of Christ, there is real reason to fear death because the Bible teaches in the book of Hebrews chapter 9 that it's appointed unto man once to die and after that, the judgment When you're walking around in this world with the reality that you know you're guilty, that you've sinned against the Creator, and you're carrying this big 
weight, this debt of guilt upon your back, and you know that death is inevitable, indeed you have good reason to fear. But friend, if you're sitting here this morning with that debt of guilt, you can roll that debt upon the Lord Christ. You can roll it upon his back because the very purpose for which he was born was so that he would die and in his death he would take away the fear of death because he would take that guilt away from you. He would forgive you of all your sins if you just but roll that guilt onto him. But friend, if you keep trusting in yourself, if you think, well, I'm just going to deal with this on my own terms. I'm just going to try to be a better person. I'm just going to try to clean up my act a little bit. You'll never be clean enough. You need somebody else to die the death that you deserve. You need somebody else to take the punishment that you deserve. Thomas Hobbes, probably the greatest British political philosopher towards the end of his life, He said, quote, if I were the master of the world, I would give it all to live one day longer. Charles IX, king of France, who ordered the massacre of St. Bartholomew's Day, said this. His last words, what blood, what murders. I know not where I am. How will it all end? What shall I do? I am lost forever, and I know it. Voltaire, the French philosopher, spent much of his life railing against Christianity. He also on his deathbed talking to his doctor. He said, I'm abandoned by God and man. I will give you half of what I'm worth if you will give me six months of life. The doctor replied, Sir, I cannot give you six weeks. Voltaire replied, Then I shall go to hell and you will go with me. And soon after that, he breathed his last. Friend, are you afraid to die? Not talking about the, the realities of the sufferings involved with death. I mean, who, who's, you know, who gets chipper over that? But I'm talking about the reality of death itself and what comes after. Friend, if your hope is in Christ this morning, if you're trusting, if you're putting all your eggs in his basket, you don't have to fear death. It's been defanged. And you can live a life of confidence before God. Not not a reckless life. It's not what I'm talking about. But I'm I'm talking about with that kind of confidence and and assurance that you're going to live and give your all to live all your days for Jesus with joy knowing that that greatest enemy in the world has been slayed, namely death itself. That when you close your eyes in death, you will be ushered into an eternity of everlasting joy. Not because of how good of a person you are, but because of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. 
It was George Whitfield who said, I am invincible until the day God has appointed me to die. <laughs> friend, you can live with that kind of confidence. And friend, if your hope is not in Christ and you're still living in the tyranny and the bondage of the fear of death, I urge you to roll off that guilt. Trust in Christ alone for your eternal salvation. That's why he came. That is the why of Christmas. And so now we can see, again, the tremendous implications. What if Jesus had never been born? Then we all perish. But he was born, and he did die, and he did rise, and the promise is true. The Apostle Paul had this confidence of Fearless Christianity, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 20. He says, for even now, as always, as, as Paul was, he was incarcerated at that point. Possibly, he didn't know the verdict, but he, he could have been executed at the end of that. He wasn't, not in that imprisonment, but a later imprisonment, he would be executed. But he says, Christ, even now, as always, will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He had that confidence not because he was such a swell fellow, but because he knew Jesus had slayed death for him. Jesus had promised him eternal life well first purpose of the birth of Christ is to die the second is to defang and deliver from the fear of death third is to defend notice verse 17 Therefore, again, here's another important statement on the incarnation. He had to be made like his brethren in all things. What does he mean by that? He had to be made human. He had to take upon flesh so that, here's another purpose statement, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This is good. You knew I had to bring in Leviticus somewhere in here. <laughs> he had to be made like his brethren in all things in order to be a high priest. Now, again, in our culture, when we think of priests, we think of a guy dressed in dark with a clerical collar. It's not talking about those kinds of priests. It's talking about these ancient priests in Israel. The first priest himself was Adam, who was supposed to function as a mediator between God and his, his posterity. And he dwelt in the very presence of God. And those later priests with Aaron, Moses' brother, and then the sons of Aaron, and these special men were appointed by God to be mediators between God and man. They were to be go-betweens. And so again, this is here we see the importance of the incarnation. We needed a priest. 
We needed a mediator. And the mediator has to be a proper go-between who is like his brethren so that he can represent his brethren before God, but he also has to be like God. And so we have in Jesus the perfect mediator, the God-man. And he becomes this merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Notice what it says here, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Well, that's a mouthful, propitiation. Don't be afraid of it. It's a beautiful word. It's a word that we talked about when we were in Leviticus chapter 16. On that Jewish holiday, that day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. That priest, only one day out of the year, he would go into the innermost part of the tabernacle and he would make an offering before God. But before he would go into that tabernacle, there was a casting of the lots. And you remember, the one lot fell upon the goat, the the one goat who was to be offered to the Lord to appease God's wrath. And the other goat... This, the, 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 the priest would confess the sins of Israel over that goat and it would be sent out into the wilderness. And the one goat who's offered before God is a picture of propitiation and the other goat is a picture of expiation. Propitiation means to appease the wrath of God. The one goat had to bear the justice of God. The other goat is a picture of expiation, sins being taken away. So what is propitiation? It's appeasing God's just anger. And so all of that, the author of Hebrews is telling us here, All of that ceremony, all of that ritual in the Old Testament, it was like an object lesson. Just like you might teach a child through object lessons, through a flannel graph, through flashcards, or through some kind of object, through pictures. All of that were pictures that ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ would fulfill as the perfect high priest one day. And so this is what the author, but he had to be human to be that fitting high priest, to be able to make that sacrifice. But here's the wonder of it all. This is where the the picture in the Old Testament breaks down because the priests of the Old Testament themselves did not climb on the altar and slit their own throats. They brought the goat. They brought the animal. But here, in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, Jesus himself is not only the priest, but he's the sacrifice. He himself loved sinners so much that he himself became the sacrifice when he was hanging on that Roman cross and he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he is bearing in his body the full brunt of hell so that he could defend his people. What do I mean by defend? Well, to be a priest, 
to be a legal advocate before God, to be a representative before God and say, God, you can't send them to hell because I paid the price for that sin. This is 1 John 2, 1, 2, right? My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is a propitiation. There it is again. He is a propitiation for our sins. What a beautiful statement. We have this advocate, this defender. You have representation in the courtroom of God. You don't want Adam as your representative. You don't want yourself as your representative. There's that old adage in the courtroom, he who has himself as his own attorney has a fool for an attorney. You don't want to be your own defense attorney. But you can have a public defender free of charge. The perfect public defender, the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect priest who can stand before you and be that advocate. Oh, my dear Christian friends this morning, this is the purpose of the incarnation. You can have joy and confidence and hope in this dark world because your greatest problem is dealt with. You have an advocate. You have a defender. And again, this helps us to see back to George Bailey. What if he had never been born? You stand before God with your own guilt as your own defender. There's no hope. But friend, you do have to respond to this message. You do have to put in the guilty plea. There is an offer on the table. If you but plead guilty and trust in Jesus as your only hope and turn from your rebellion to him, say, Jesus, you're my priest, you're my king, you're my public defender. If you come to him, your record is expunged. It's good news. That's why. This is why the, the, the young people sang it, right? There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them in a dream. I'm getting the verses confused. I bring you good news of great joy. It's good news, friends, of great joy. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. This is the good news. Let me close with a story about Adoniram Judson, the great missionary to the Burmese people. In his youth, Adoniram was a brilliant boy. His mother taught him to read in one week. 
When he was three, he surprised his father when he came, uh, came home from a trip learning how to read at such a young age. When he was 16, he entered Brown University. As a sophomore, he graduated at the top of his class in 1807. What his godly parents did not know that during his time at university, Adoniram had turned away from the Lord. He had rejected the faith that his parents had taught him. He came under the influence of a man by the name of Jacob Eames, who was a deist. Deism teaches that God hasn't really revealed himself, but he's some God who's kind of way out there, who's who's kind of wound up the world like a clock, and he's just kind of gone off to be by himself. And so Adoniram had rejected the Christian faith. Well, not long after this, it was uh, in 1808, on his 20th birthday, he told his parents. Of course, their hearts were broken. And not long after that, six days later, on a horse, he went away with his inheritance. It didn't prove to be a life of his dreams. He attached himself to some strolling players and lived a reckless, vagabond life, finding lodging where he could. And... He stayed in this village inn on one particular night. It was cheap. And so he stayed there. And he could hear in the next room a man coughing, hacking up what sounded like to be his own lung. The man in the next room had tuberculosis and he was dying. And Adoniram Judson was just haunted by the sound of this man coughing and and hacking all night. And he became overwhelmed with the reality of his own frailty and, and the reality that he too will die one day. Eventually, he was finally able to work himself to sleep and he woke up and he, he, didn't, he didn't hear any coughing anymore. And as he was checking out in that inn, he, he asked the innkeeper, he said, uh, what, the, the man in the room next to me, is, is he okay? He said, no, the man died last night. Eames was his name, Jacob Eames. This was the deist who had influenced Judson several years earlier in the University. His good friend was now in eternity. It was at that point that Adoniram Judson was crushed. The fear of death had so gripped his heart, he knew that the only place he could turn was to the Lord Christ, whom his parents had taught him about in his youth. And so it was there that Judson turned to Christ. Friend, turn to Christ this morning.
He's the only one who can deliver from the fear of death. Let's pray.